0: Can you turn please to Ezra chapter 3, as if you didn't know that already? Ezra chapter 3. I'm loving Ezra. I was walking through Belfast last night after being at the cinema, and it was about half eight, and a whole lot of rather strangely dressed people were walking the streets of Belfast, uh, just going on their night out, and I was thinking, I can't wait to get home to read Ezra. <laughs> At, do I need to get out more? Like you know, that's the, I don't want to be here. Like, get me, get me home to my, to my books. Um, we're in a series called The Rebuilders. Uh, we're looking at the ones who came out of ex- exile and went back to Jerusalem and started to rebuild the the temple and to rebuild the city walls themselves. So. Um, we're in Ezra three. Last week we did Ezra one. We're going to mention a wee bit about Ezra two, but we won't go into it in wild detail. If you have a, if you have your Bible open and you have a glance at Ezra two, you'll you'll see why. There's a lot of names there. So let's read Ezra three. I'm going to read all of it, and then as we go through it, I'm not really going to go through verse by verse as much as pick out some themes that are repeated and that are key. So the whole, the whole heart of this is what, what sort of people are the rebuilders? What are their priorities? What's their heart? And what's important to them in terms of getting things done? And I forgot to mention last week, or the week, yeah, last week when we started Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah are actually only one book. In your Bible, they're split into two, but in the original <clears throat> Hebrew Bible, they're one book, one continuous book. And you hear a lot of sermon series on Nehemiah, But really, if we're going to do do this well, you can't just sort of push Ezra to one side. We've got to see what he says because he's the first half of one book. So verse one of Ezra three, there's loads of fine details here. And you know what? They look like they're just fine details. But whenever we get into it, you'll find out that actually it's really cool what's going on. Or I think it is. But I'm the guy who wanted to go home last night and read Ezra instead of you know, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of jozadak that's a different Joshua from the book of Joshua, just in case you're thinking I know him, different guy, and his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, whose name means planted or born in Babylon, Son of Shealtiel and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices." Then in accordance with what is written they celebrated the festival or the feast of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day After that they presented the regular burnt offerings the new moon sacrifices and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord as well as those brought as free will offerings to the Lord On the first day of the seventh month they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, Joshua, Uh, The rest of the people, the Levites, all who had returned from captivity to Jerusalem began the work. They appointed Levites 20 years old and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. There's a verse to kill any notions that young people can't do things responsibly or can't be given responsibility. The Levites, if you were 20 and you were a Levite, you could supervise the building project. Joshua, his sons, And brothers and Cadmiel and his sons and all those guys, all the Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, "'He is good.'" His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was led. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being led. While many others shouted for joy, no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. Now, so this is our key verse from Amos: I will bring my people Israel back from exile, and they will rebuild. This is our timeline, and this is where we are. We're in about 530s, mid-530s B.C., Cyrus has taken over Babylon and allowed the Jewish people to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple and rebuild their city. And Ezra, even though he wasn't around at this stage, he's recording the history of it before he he goes up even to Jerusalem himself a bit later. Now, a word on chapter 2. Chapter 2 is about 70 verses like these. (laughs) brutal stuff. Just all these names and numbers, a whole heap of them there, just a selection and then there's another whole heap of them. What on earth is the point of that or why do we have all that? A couple of things just to note about these lists before we get into chapter 3. God works in history with real people, with names and jobs and families and parents and children God works in history. He's not detached from humanity, barking out orders from the far reaches of the universe. He works in history among people. And these are some of the people of this particular historical period. He also works with a remnant. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah looks forward to this time. And he talks about how when a tree is cut down, it leaves a stump. And God's people at this point were just a stump most of them stayed in babylon the number who came back was a lot lower than the number who went in but from that remnant from that small number god will rebuild his people and rebuild jerusalem also note all of these names we are working here with a community of people together there are a few sort of leaders who are who are named more frequently because of what they were doing but this, you know, this chapter with about 70 verses like this of name after name after name, this is a community of people working together. Rebuilding is a community project. It is not something that is left to one or two people. And also it's really important because it gives the people a sense of identity. One of the most important documents that you have that I bet you can probably never find when you need it is your birth certificate. Yeah, every now and again, about every 10 years, somebody asks for it and there's a whole kerfuffle trying to find the thing and and present it. But it says, you know, your name and your parents' names and where you were born and when you were born. It's proof of who you are. And for these people, the, the, the lists of names in your Bible are proof of their identity as the people of God, as Jews. And it was really, really important to, it, to them that they had it. For example, towards the end of chapter 2, there are some people who couldn't find their family records, couldn't find their birth certificate, couldn't find the list of names. And because they couldn't prove who they were, they were not allowed to act as priests until that could be straightened out. 70 years in Babylon, you have to understand that some of these people didn't even know each other. About 40,000 of them came back, 40 or 50,000. A lot of them just didn't, didn't even know who, who the other one was. Like, we don't know that many people. We don't know 50,000 people. So they would have come back, and they had to very painstakingly prove who they were. Now, the thing I want to focus in on today in Ezra 3 is how to rebuild identity in uncertain times. We have come through an uncertain time. It's been relatively short, a couple of years. And there's been a lot of shaking and a lot of change. And there still is a lot of shaking going on. These people came through 70 years of shaking and change. And they had to rebuild their identity as God's people. What were their priorities? What were the rhythms and practices that they would adopt in order to do that? In the, one of the things that you'll find in this passage as we, as we pick some things out is that there are little details that you can easily miss But if you dive around in the Old Testament a wee bit, you suddenly realize the power of them. When the seventh month came. So they go back to Jerusalem and they settle in their various towns and villages and in around it. And for seven months, they don't do anything or six months apart from just get settled down. And they they specifically pick the seventh month to get together and start the project to start, you know, planning and, and, and working on things. And the reason is that the seventh month in the Jewish calendar was the month that had loads of really important feasts and festivals in it. The Feast of Tabernacles, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Trumpets. So they, they wait, and there's a, there's a big theme coming here that I'm, that I'm building towards with a lot of these fine details. They wait until the seventh month, because that historically is an important month for the nation. In chapter 2, you've all those names, And at the end of chapter 2, you've got about, you've over 50,000 people. And you you don't have 50,000 names, but you've loads and loads of names in in chapter 2. All these individuals. And then you don't see it if you read a chapter and then go away and do something, then come back a day or a week later and read the next chapter. But as you go from this massive boring list in chapter 2 to chapter 3, this is what you get. All of those people, all of those individual names, that big, long, boring list. Ezra then writes, they all assemble together as one. One of the priorities of rebuilders is unity. Unity. They assemble as one. This is like a biblical phrase where the people come together as one man or as one person. And don't confuse unity with uniformity. Uniformity means we're all the same. That is not a Christian concept. We're not all the same. Uniform, you wear it to school every day. Everybody looks the same. We don't want to be uniform. We don't want to exercise uniformity. We want unity. Unity is whenever the Holy Spirit brings together a whole different batch of people and makes them one. Doesn't make them the same, but makes them one. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, no matter what our background was, and we were given one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but many. Lots and lots of different parts, different people brought together in unity. And the people that came up out of Babylon were very different, 50,000 of them different jobs, different family backgrounds from different parts of Babylon, didn't know each other. But they all had one thing in common. God had stirred them. He had stirred them all and, and, and brought them together in one place. God does this. He moves pieces into place to achieve his purposes. And he had stirred these different people with their different gifts and they're different passions, and he had started to bring them all back to Jerusalem to work in unity with one purpose, to achieve what God wanted to see achieved. God loves unity. Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell together, or live together in unity. There the Lord bestows his blessing it's as if God looks and he sees unity and says I love that I'm going to bless that you're not the same as her and he's not the same as her and 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 she you know everybody but I love the unity and I'm going to bless it and it is so precious and has to be guarded and has to be protected God loves unity but there's something God hates and in Proverbs you have this Phrase in Proverbs 6, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. And that's a way of the writer getting your attention and saying, take note of the seventh thing, because he hates that more than anything. And the seventh thing in the list is a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Or an older version of the scripture would say, someone who sows discord among brothers God loves unity and he pours out a blessing on unity, but he hates division and he hates discord. It was on the day of Pentecost, whenever they were all together in one place that the Spirit came, unity. The Spirit of God fell on a people who were united in seeking him. And Paul writes to the Ephesians and tells them to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Effort that would imply that a wee bit of work is involved. If you want to maintain unity in a community of people, it will take work. It'll take forgiveness. It'll take understanding. It'll take conversation. It'll take time. There is effort involved in it, and Paul says, "Make every effort to keep unity." So one of the the priorities of rebuilders is unity. Another one that we see in Ezra three, and you'll you'll notice it if you read it a few times. We get over and over again this phrase in accordance with what is written. You get it in verse 2. You get it in verse 4. And then in verse 10, you get that they they praised God in a way that was prescribed by David, king of Israel. Everything had to be done in obedience to God's word. Three times we, we read of this emphasis on doing things the way it was written or prescribed, which means written. Everything that they did had to be in, co- in accordance with the word. They had learned very painfully over 70 years that disobeying God was a bad idea. He had warned them way back in Deuteronomy 28, if you do not obey the Lord your God and follow his commands and decrees, curses will come upon you. And at the end of the same chapter, Deuteronomy 28, he says the Lord will scatter you among the nations. In other words, I'm bringing you into a land And if you will obey my commands, you will enjoy the blessings of the land. But if you disobey, you're going out. And they had learned painfully over 70 years that to disobey God led to exile. And now as they come back to rebuild, high priority is the word of God. Knowing it, learning it, reading it, obeying it. Not just discussing it, but obeying it. And those who want to rebuild in Ezra's time or in our time will be people who will have a central passion for the Word of God. It will not be a peripheral thing in their lives. Knowing it and obeying it will be central to who they are. Whenever, as we find out in the, in the next few weeks as we continue on, the work grinds to a halt There's opposition that that stops the rebuilding. How does it get started again? It gets started again when two guys called Haggai and Zechariah show up. And there are prophets. And what do prophets do? They bring the word of God. And that gets everything moving again. Later on in Ezra, you find the people living in a way that is not in keeping with God's word. And Ezra comes along to put it right. And what does he bring with him? He brings the law, the Torah, and he starts reading it to the people. So his word, God's word, for those who want to rebuild, it's really important to do things the way God has prescribed them. And here, just for a minute or two, I want to go into the fine details of this chapter. And it is literally just a minute or two, so stick with me because it's good. In chapter two, look at some of the people that are listed. Priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers of the temple and temple servants. All of those people obviously have roles within the temple. And it was really important for Ezra to make sure that their names were recorded and that the right people got the right jobs. I wanted you to get into your head. Everything is being done right. Everything's being done properly. Because what was the temple? The temple was the place where God dwelt among his people. And they have lost the presence of God. And they are desperate to get it back. So they're going to do everything right in order to try and enjoy the presence of God again. What are they going to make the temple from? Ezra 3, 7 is a verse that I want to just bang about in here for about a minute. They built it from cedar. All right? Cedar. Cedar's a nice wood. Top of my guitar is cedar. Yours is spruce. But your other one's cedar. And your other one, and your other one, and your, you know, all of them. Yeah. Yeah. That it had to be made from cedar. Now, now, follow me here. This is the rebuilders rebuilding the temple. They want cedar. This is 2 Chronicles 2 describing Solomon's temple. Look what it was built from. He wanted cedar logs. They're rebuilding the temple and they want to use cedar because he used cedar. Now, not any old cedar in Ezra 3, 7. It had to be cedar logs from Lebanon. I don't know why but that was particularly good cedar and they said we don't want the cedar down the road or or, we want it from Lebanon. That made life more difficult but why did they want it from Lebanon? Because in 2nd Chronicles 2 Solomon's temple he specified I want cedar from Lebanon to build my temple for God's presence to dwell in. Look at where the cedar was going to come to in Ezra 3, 7. A fine detail, easily overlooked, not important, but it comes to Joppa. That's because whenever Solomon built his temple, not only did he want cedar, not only did he want it from Lebanon, but it came to Joppa. And then the joiners, the carpenters, uh, they were people from Sidon and Tyre. Because back in Second Chronicles 2, you will read a letter from Solomon to the king of Tyre saying, my servants will work with yours to provide lumber. In other words, I want your joiners to come and work for me. And then the way they're paid in Ezra 3, 7, they're paid with food and drink and olive oil. Seems a bit bizarre until you look back to Second Chronicles and you see the way that Solomon paid the builders was with food, wheat and barley and wine and olive oil. And it all was happening in the second month. Ezra 3, eight again, a fine detail, not a big deal. Yes, it is. In the second month was important because Solomon began building on the second day of the second month. What is the point in me telling you all of this? They are mm. desperate for the presence of God. I am desperate for the presence of God. And they knew that God's presence dwelt in a temple and they were called to rebuild the temple and they were so desperate for the presence of God that they went back into the scriptures, into the records, into the history and they made sure we are going to do everything right. We're going to absolutely bend over backwards even if it's more difficult to do it this way. We are going to bust ourselves to build a temple exactly like the one that went before. It doesn't work out like that, but they want the materials, they want the timing, they want the workers, they want everything to be as similar as it was when Solomon built the first temple because they're desperate for the presence of God. And that then caused them to act and to build in a certain way that would bring his presence. Now, you cannot rub a lamp like a genie and and sort of, get God to appear. But there's a way that we can live that will cause God's presence to dwell among us. Okay? So I'm not saying a church building needs to be made of a certain type of blocks from a certain country, delivered via a certain port. But we are the living stones that build the temple. We want to enjoy the presence of God and therefore we should be exceptionally fussy about how we live and how we do things because we're desperate for his presence. Tim Keller said that we cannot cause revival to happen, but we can get in the way of it and prevent it happening. So we can't whip it up, but there's a whole lot of things that we can put in place, a whole lot of things that we can do that makes the way clear for the presence of God rather than not doing them and blocking up A move of God. Simple things like prayer and worship and scripture. We've read about how important it was for them to do everything in accordance with what is written. Eating together. We're going to see later how these guys ate together and feasted together. We got a wee taste of that again on Friday night. And one of the most important things whenever restrictions eased a bit last year was to start the the pattern of eating together from September. Or those community meals where we just thought, right, we can do this. We'll leave the doors open. We'll be cold. It'll be all right. But we'll eat together. And we'll be together. Simple things like forgiving each other. Jesus says in Matthew that, that where we're two or three agree on something, that there am I in the midst. And the thing that they're agreeing on when you read it in context is forgiveness. And God says, I'll come and I'll dwell in a place where people forgive each other. Jesus says, love one another. People will know you're my disciples if you love one another. So so just like these guys were really fussy about all their materials to build the dwelling of God, so we should be fussy in our lives about how we live as individuals and even more how we live corporately together if we really want to encounter his presence. And one of the first things built, in fact, the first thing built, the first priority of these builders is the altar. They don't even have a roof, okay? They don't have a roof. I don't know what shape the temple walls are in. I know Nebuchadnezzar burnt it. I don't know whether that caused the stone to fall or whether there were still bits and pieces of the original structure there. There wouldn't have been much left. But when they get there, they build an altar first because their priority is worship, all right? It's worship. It's not having the nice building finished to be able to sit and say, look what we did. It is worship. Abraham, long ago in Genesis 13, when he started to travel and started to move into the land that God was bringing him to, he built altars everywhere he went. Worship, 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 worship. And not only did they build an altar, but once again, they're fussy about the details. They're desperate for the presence of God. So they're not going to be half-baked about this. They're not going to be sort of ramshackle about it. They are going to do it right. They build the altar. Where is it? It's in the next verse. On its foundation. They're poking about in the temple ruins. It's going to be on the same site. And they're not just going to set up an altar anywhere. They're going to find where is the foundation of the original altar, We're going to rebuild an altar right there. It's going to go in the exact place where it was before. And they build the altar on the foundation. Their priority was to reestablish the regular worship of God. For a long time, they couldn't worship God the way they wanted to limited expressions of worship in babylon but they couldn't worship at the temple at the altar the way they wanted to think about the last few years and how we were restricted in terms of just our praise so there's lots of different ways to worship but just in terms of our praise our ability to be together to sing together and they want now to reestablish that that which has been taken from them they want to re-establish it and i remember towards the end of when it became clear that restrictions were were going to be lifted and that we were going to be allowed to be together again, there was a lot of talk, a lot of talking heads in the church, (laughs) a lot of podcasts and a lot of videos and an awful lot of advice about about what it was going to be like when we were allowed to gather again. And one of the things that I heard repeatedly and it got into my mind and I probably said it myself was that we, we shouldn't be pining for what was before. We shouldn't be trying to get things exactly as they were before. And I think there's some wisdom in that, that to just come out of the the COVID experience and just straight away put everything back the way it was, every meeting, every gathering, every sort of youth event, just just to blindly do everything that we did before without thinking about it probably wouldn't have been the best idea. But there are things that are non-negotiable. And I think coming out of the pandemic, one of the most important things was reestablishing the pattern of worship. Gathering together again. Sunday mornings aren't everything, but Sunday mornings are massive. (laughs) They're massive. In our culture, Sunday mornings have become optional. And in America, people will, will call regular church attendance. they will call that once a month. That's what they will say is regular church attendance. The priority of these rebuilders was to get the altar built, to gather around it, and to offer worship to God. And I think one of the priorities of the church is to get reestablished in regular corporate worship of God if we are to know him and know our identity in him. So I would say when it comes to praising him as one expression of worship, we should be saying, I want this like it was before. Because what God comes along and does in the story of Ezra and Haggai is, he says, it's actually going to be better. He says, the glory of this house is going to be better than the former house. But I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, boy, we want to worship with passion. Yeah? And we want to seek God and we want to lift his name together. We want to get back to that. That's what these guys wanted to do. And they offered the burnt offering, which was a reminder of their forgiveness of sin at the heart of our worship. And I listened to the songs as I was preparing in the prayer room this morning. I could hear the songs as the guys were warming up. I thought those are great songs. Great songs for breaking bread. Great songs for thinking about forgiveness. At the heart of their worship was these burnt offerings that, that, that covered their sin. And some of their worship was regular and some of it was special. All right, there, was, there was offerings on a daily basis, but then there were these feasts as well, these special times when they got together and worshiped God in a particularly vigorous way. The Feast of Tabernacles, if you know nothing about it, think Christmas, It was the highlight of the year. It was class, it was lights and it was food and it was celebration and it was party time and they did it well. It was joy, the Feast of Tabernacles. So they not only put in place the regular weekly you know, for us, the weekly Sunday morning of praise. But they also had these other times when they feasted together and they celebrated together, and they did it all in community. Again, it was all of those names coming together as 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 one man. Some people say to me sometimes that they find it difficult to seek God on their own. They have great times in the presence of God when they're gathered together with other Christians but they find it hard to establish a routine of quiet times. Now, I I believe in quiet times, okay? I believe in devotional life, and I would encourage you to passionately pursue God in private. But you know what? I think God has designed it that when we come together, those are the moments. You know, when the fire gets lit again, and you get passion again, and you get stirred, I find I will personally... Hear God much more here than I will when I'm just seeking Him on my own. That is just my experience. Times that I'm just sitting in the prayer meeting on a Tuesday night and I'll just feel God stirring something within me just as I'm sitting there corporately with God's people. Same thing on a Sunday morning. So if you find yourself in a place when you come together and you find it really easy to have a passion for the Word and really easy to have a passion for worship and praise when you're together and it's harder when you're on your own. I would say that's okay <laughs> that's not to neglect private devotion but that is that God has, has designed us to worship and to live in community and to fire one another up and encourage each other their worship involved praise and thanksgiving in Ezra 3 10 once that foundation is led they start to praise God and they sing familiar songs that they know from the psalms worshiping him he's good His love endures forever. What does it mean to say that God is good? Well, where do you read about good in the Bible? Day one, everything was good. Day two, the Lord looked at it. It was all good. Day three, it was all good. His creation shows forth his goodness. We're to worship him because he is good. And he is faithful. His love endures forever. His hesed, his covenant committed love endures forever. And they shout their praise. I have on occasion been known to shout my praise. (laughs) They shout their praise. They make a noise that you read about in a couple of verses later at the end of the chapter that's heard all around the country, all around the place, because they're making such a racket as they praise God. They're passionate people. Rebuilders are passionate about their praise. So building for God must start with worship. They built the altar on its foundation. And I really don't care how impressive somebody's building skills are. I want to see them worship. I want to hear them pray. I want to hear the heart that's within them coming out rather than just knowing what they can build. Their priority is worship. And fear won't prevent them. There's people around them who oppose them and despite their fear, they get on with it and they build an altar. They build a place of worship. But in the midst of all of that, there's some people weeping. Many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple, they wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. It's hard to know were they weeping for joy? because they had seen the previous temple and they were excited about this rebuild or were they weeping because they didn't think it was going to be as good didn't think it was going to be as big or as impressive as what went before I think the latter I think they, they had seen these were the older guys who had seen the original temple and they wept because they thought this wouldn't be as good and this is the context into which Hegei comes and he says no it's going to be better God's glory in this house is going to be better than the previous one. One last word before we finish. One of the, after the altar was built, they then laid the foundation in Ezra 3.10. So there was a foundation already there for the altar that they put the new altar on. But then they'd started to lay the foundation for the temple. So I've been thinking about foundations a wee bit. Here's the foundations of our house. Mm And there is a great man walking along the top of them. All of that is now underground. Now there's about 13 blocks deep there. The builder said to me, David, this ground's quite wet. (laughs) And he says, I'm going to put in more foundation and I'm going to move the house up the site and bring it higher up the, the field from where it's meant to be. And there's about 13 blocks of depth there. And the blocks aren't set sort of edge on edge like the walls of the house. They're set flat. Because it's got to be stronger. So there's an awful lot of blocks in there. Um, If if those were on their heads, that would be extremely high. But that now is all underground. You cannot see it. But it had to be done. And it had to be done well. And it had to be strong. And whenever you see the field beside us flood, (laughs) which it does about two or three times a year, you'd be very happy that there's a good foundation. But nobody sees the foundation. Nobody sees it. And it took a long time to do, and it was frustrating. I remember, you know, the excitement that some of you have building a house, and, the, and you call out every now and again to see what the progress was like, and you're just like, no, oh, they're still just doing the foundation. You know, they're still doing the foundation. Like, how long is this going to take? Because the foundation is important. The foundation is important. The builders led the foundation. I believe there is a foundation led in this place. A foundation led. It's been just over five years since we first worshipped here in this location. And we worshipped in many other places before that. But I do think there's a solid foundation here. The blocks on their flat. We'd love to build quicker when you want to build a house. Um, I lived in a house before that, that, or we lived in a house before that, that was built quickly. and It was really obvious that it was built quickly. <laughs> Once you're in it for a while, you, you, you yeah, this was built very quickly indeed. Sometimes you want to see building quicker, but actually, no. A slow build is better. If you build too quick and the foundation begins to shift around, then you can cause a lot more damage whenever things are tough, whenever a flood comes or a storm comes. I think God's been putting a foundation together here for years and years and years and years. Some of the blocks were laid 20 years ago and some of them 10 years ago and some of them 5 years ago. But there's an awful lot that has gone on under the surface, under the ground that is now unseen. But it's solid. It won't move. Some skyscrapers have foundations that are nearly 100 metres deep. You imagine a 100-metre sprint track from the Olympics turned up on its end and stuck down under the ground. That's deep. No one ever sees it and ever will see it. But it had to be put there and it had to be done right in order to support what was being built on it. And you you could rock up to a building site like me and Linda did many times whenever this was being built and you're like, mm, you know, I just would love to see a wall. I'd love to see a doorway, a window, a roof tile. I want to see the the visible and I want to see it take shape. But if that happens too quick, then the house will not be solid. I think the foundation here is strong because we have worshiped together. We have an altar. And we have eaten together and we have prayed together and we have wept together. And we've gone through trials together and we've gone through a pandemic together. Nobody had a clue what to do but we're here there is a foundation there is an altar the author of hebrews speaks about abraham and says about abraham looking for a city which has foundations not just a city that looks nice but a city that has foundations and why does that city have foundations because the builder the maker the architect is god himself rebuilders need to have the right priorities How do you get a people to rebuild their identity in an uncertain time? They've gotta have rhythms of worship and prayer. They've gotta focus on unity. They've gotta focus on the word of God. They've gotta be fussy about the fine details, not legalism, but being determined, I am gonna live in a way, and I'm gonna live in community in a way that will not hinder the presence of God. We don't wanna get in the way of revival. And it's hard to follow Jesus. And I think it's particularly hard probably when you're younger. And that's why these rhythms are so important. Being together and encountering him together. So those are just some thoughts from Ezra 3 about why we need to, or things we need to focus on as we rebuild. One of the things that they did was they feasted together. And they remembered in the Feast of Tabernacles what God had done in the past. We're going to do that in a few minutes. And hopefully in a few weeks we'll get a full meal to to have communion over. And they worshipped. And we're going to worship. And they shouted. I'm not going to shout and roar at you. But they worshipped with passion. Alright. They were aware of those around them. But they were not hindered by those around them. And they worshipped with passion. So let's do that.